Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you all, and it's great to be joined as well by those who are online. Well, I want you just to imagine for a moment that I'm on holiday uh, in America, and I'm walking across the Golden Gate Bridge. I don't know if anybody's been there. I haven't, but I hear it's amazing, uh, and it's a wonderful view. And uh, as I'm admiring the view, I hear another man admiring the view, and I hear him say, what an awesome God as he admires the view. So I say, ooh, are you a Christian? And he replies, yes, I am a Christian. So we shook hands. I said, are you a liberal Christian or a fundamentalist Christian? He says, I'm a fundamentalist Christian. I said, well, so am I. So we smiled and we nodded to each other. Are you a covenantal or dispensational fundamental Christian, I say. He says, I'm a dispensational fundamental Christian. I said, so am I. We slapped one another on the back. I said, are you an early acts, mid-acts, or late-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. I said, so am I. So we agreed to exchange Christmas cards each year. I said, are you an Acts 9 or an Acts 13, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian? I said, I'm an Acts 9, mid-acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. He said, so am I. And we hugged one another right there on the bridge. This wasn't during the times of uh, social distancing. He then said, are you a pre-trib or post-trib, Acts 9, mid-Acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian? He said, I'm a pre-trib, Acts 9, mid-Acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. He said, so am I. We agreed to exchange our kids for a summer holiday. He said, are you a 12-in or a 12-out pre-trib, Acts 9, mid-Acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. And I said, I'm a 12-in pre-trib, Acts 9, mid-Acts, dispensational, fundamental Christian. And he said, oh, I'm not. I said, you heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Well, it's a funny story. It's not true, by the way. And um, it illustrates, sadly, a lot of the disagreements in the church, but not only the disagreements in the church, but the disagreement um, throughout our society. I've got um, one or two images here that will hopefully come on the screens uh, that illustrate, if they don't, it doesn't matter. I will have to explain them. I don't know if we can get uh, any of the images on the PowerPoint. It's behind me, is it? Ah, it is behind me, but it's not in front of me. That's the problem. Here we go. Disagreeing badly. I think that sums up so much of our society today. We are not a church and we are not a society that disagrees well. We're so often at enmity. We readily view our different opinions as if we were enemies. We see the different positions that we hold dividing us and we find it really difficult to disagree well. There are so many examples, aren't there, in our contemporary society. Uh, Brexit or Remain. Do you know, somebody came up to me about two years ago and um, we were talking about church. He said, I used to go to church. I said, oh, right. I said, why did you leave? He said, because of Brexit. Have you ever heard anybody give that reason for leaving church before? I said, really? And he told me the church he went to. I knew it well. I knew the vicar there. And he said, oh, well, he said, I was quite a fan of leaving and no one else in the church was. And I kind of fell out with some people. So I saw the vicar about a week later and I said, do you know I met this person who used to go to your church? And he told me he left because of Brexit. He said, oh, why was that? I said, well, because he, he, he wanted to vote to leave, but everybody else told him it was wrong. And so he left. And do you know what the vicar said? He said, I can't believe there's anybody in my church who voted to leave. And then you've got, 
if you're a Scot, we might have some Scots watching or some Scots here. We, we've got the whole independence referendum. Do we remain part of the union or do we divide? I, I had a friend from Scotland. He actually just uh, lives over the border in Northumberland who stayed with us the other day. He, said he is so sad about this because it's made the nation so divided. Uh, and he said people really become very hostile and angry when the conversation is raised. And he's actually, sadly, although he loves his country, he's really glad that he lives just over the border in England because it takes all that tension out of the disagreement. Um, we have obviously had political disagreements for ages. Tory Labour, there was a bishop the other day who tweeted, never trust a Tory. And some people said, well, that's just written off 35% of the country. It's, it's divisive. Our ability to disagree badly has, uh, just seems to have grown so much, doesn't it, over recent years. Obviously, the lockdown's been divisive. Uh, some people uh, have been very, very, very pro the rules and sticking to the rules very, very strictly for lots and lots of really good reasons. Others haven't, and it's caused division, and it's caused uh, lots of upset. Um, that can be the same with, with the vaccine. The uh, vast majority of people are very pro-vaccine, but there are some people who hold a different view, um, and that leads to all sorts of angry disagreements. This is what people call the kind of woke or the progressive approach. And there are those who are much more traditionalist in their approach to values. Causes huge disagreement. And it's often so angry and hostile. I don't need to mention neighbours, do I? We all have neighbours. And often <laughs> relationships between neighbours is very hostile. In our own church, we have labels. Um, there were a few labels in that opening anecdote. There's liberal and evangelical. Um, and those divisions run very deep. And they can be very, very hostile when voicing disagreements. Charismatic, conservative. Pro-life, pro-choice. In fact, it's very difficult to hold a pro-life position uh, in the public sphere these days. Uh, it's almost been closed down as a debate, hasn't it? And I think we as Christians feel very strongly and, and uh, passionately um, about having that debate. Um, I suppose one of the debates that's led to poor disagreement in lots of church denominations is over the issue of traditional marriage to traditional sexuality versus a more progressive and fluid approach to marriage and sexuality. Um, and I think I'm afraid that's going to continue and continue over the next few years. And what struck me as, as somebody who's getting quite old now um, is that, and this is probably not particularly fair, it's my perspective. My perspective is that when I was growing up, it was easier to disagree well. It was easier to have a debate and to share different points of view and to agree to disagree. I remember we used to have debating societies at school and we used to take very different positions on the kind of topics of the day. I remember one of them was Europe, actually, back in the kind of early 1990s, the whole Maastricht thing. Um, and it, it used to be interesting. It used to be enjoyable. Yes, there were passionately held views, but there wasn't hostility and enmity at the end of the day. But that seems to have changed. And we could blame it on the press. We could say, well, the press is so hostile. They're always kind of dividing people. And, you know, there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that. But I suppose something that really has changed in the last 15 years is the emergence of social media, where everybody, all of us, are able to publish our views. Not only are we able to publish our views, but we do so not face-to-face, -face, 
but we do so in the privacy often of our own homes or behind our own devices. Um, and therefore, we have become a society, I think, that can make such critical, such hostile, such aggressive judgments that view the other, that view those who have different opinions to ours as enemies. And we see that time and time again. Um, and... Um, don't get me started on social media. Uh, I, I know there are lots of benefits to it, but I do see the huge, huge disadvantage that it has, I think, really exacerbated our tensions, our differences, and I think it has made it very difficult for us to agree to disagree or to disagree well. One of the favorite phrases of the Church of England is to disagree well, although it doesn't necessarily illustrate it, but it does aspire to it um, at the very least. I would say that that's um, a diagnosis of, I think, one of the deepest challenges facing our society uh, across the globe today. Our inability to disagree well, our very quick judgments that often make us at enmity with those who disagree with us. And so today, I want us to look at the Bible. I want us to look at the example of Jesus. I want us to look at Jesus' teaching to us because... He has teaching, which I think is one of the most uh, unique and most transforming parts of his teaching, that resolves this greatest problem that faces us and our society. Um, and that is that he modeled and he taught that we should love our enemies. So I want us to have a look at two passages in the Bible, and then I want us to have a look at um, how we might apply them to our lives so here we are. Here's the first um, passage. If you want to turn, if you've got Bibles um, with you or on your telephone, um, then you can um, turn to Luke chapter 23, well-known passage, well-known account of Jesus' crucifixion. And I'm going to read from verse 32. So Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. And I think I've, I did have it on. Uh, it hasn't come out on this, but never mind. So you'll have to listen to me if you don't have a Bible. So here we go. Luke chapter 23. Um, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They mocked him with wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Three things I notice on this really well-known account of Jesus' crucifixion that are on the screen there. First of all, uh, verse 34, isn't this quite incredible? As Jesus' hands and feet were being nailed to a cross, he prays this prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Isn't that the most remarkable prayer uh, ever prayed? Jesus' forgiveness for those who are literally killing him, executing him. Quite 
extraordinary example of loving your enemies. There could be no greater enemy than one who is seeking to execute you. But Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Secondly, notice that insults were hurled at Jesus by uh, the religious leaders and then by one of the criminals being executed alongside him on the cross. And Jesus remains silent. He doesn't seek to defend himself. Uh, he, he, he doesn't criticize those who are hurling insults. He simply remains silent. Gosh, that's a big contrast to the way we tend to react today, isn't it? Whenever anybody criticizes us or even hurls an insult at us, we'll be straight there defending ourselves and perhaps tearing down the credibility of that person. The third thing um, to notice is just Jesus' response to the penitent thief who realizes that he's done wrong and recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus speaks words of hope and grace to that person. Uh, the person asked to be remembered uh, when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Jesus answers, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, so we could just um, learn from that, um, I think, that um, Jesus prays for those who persecute him. Jesus remains silent when he is mocked. Jesus offers words of hope truth and grace to those who come to him. So that's Jesus' example. And I want to move to another really well-known passage, which is Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching to us. It's uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. And again, sorry, I don't think um, the words have made it onto my PowerPoint, I'm afraid. But it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. This is what Jesus teaches. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, teaching given to his disciples, to those who are following him. It's not general teaching for the whole world. It's teaching for those who are Christians. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So a call to love your enemies, not hate them. This is totally countercultural. The people at Jesus' time had been taught, and I think probably it's a, a teaching or a practice that's familiar in our own culture today, that you love those who support you, you hate those who don't support you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You are to love those who don't support you. You are to love uh, your enemies. So notice that it's totally opposite to the pattern of the world in Jesus' day. It's totally opposite to the pattern of our world today. Um, and then he goes on and he says, you should pray for those who persecute you. So he uses this example, just as God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the wicked equally, so we must not only pray for those we want to pray for, we must pray for those who don't, we might believe, deserve our prayers. We must pray for those who persecute us. We must pray for those who are um, against us. So we have Jesus' example on the cross, putting into practice the teaching that he gave earlier to his disciples about loving enemies. So the diagnosis is a society totally divided by bitter disagreement, where there is so much enmity, 
the solution is going to the life of Jesus. And noticing the way that he lives, the way that he deals with enemies, by praying for them, Father forgive them, by loving them, but also going back to his teaching for us. It wasn't just an example, it was a teaching that we should live like Jesus lived and we should love our enemies and we should pray for those who persecute us and not live like the world lives as we see all around us. So, application. I want to talk about a story that you might well know, the story of Les Miserables, because I find it the most moving account of the Christian life. I think it's the most powerful account of what it means to be a Christian outside the Bible of any literature that I've found. And I want to just tell you the story of the beginning of Les Miserables. I was going to play the video, but I, we, we don't have any um, rights to do so now. We're live streaming, so you'll have to listen to me, I'm afraid. I thought it would be lovely to have a little break from listening to me at this point, but alas, the technology doesn't stretch that far, I'm afraid. I think this is a wonderful example of what Jesus meant when he taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. This is a really um, well-known book. It was the best-selling book in the world at some, some point, I think, um, before Harry Potter came along, possibly, or Lord of the Rings or something like that. A very, very, uh, it was the best-selling book of its time when it first came out. I think it was published in the early 1860s, something like that, written by Victor Hugo. And actually, Victor Hugo said he wrote this book because he wanted to illustrate what he believed authentic Christian life looked like. Because he said the church wasn't reflecting it in his day. And in fact, the book begins with this bishop, who's the most godly bishop. And when people read it, apparently they started to laugh because they said there's no bishop that lives like this. Because bishops live in palaces, they have no concern for the poor, they live totally detached lives. And yet here's a bishop who is concerned for the poor, who comes out of his palace. So they laughed. The church of the day took um, the publishers to court, tried to have the book uh, banned from being distributed because they felt it was ridiculing the church. But all Victor Hugo was seeking to do was illustrate what true Christian faith looked like. So at the beginning of Les Miserables, you might have seen the musical, you might have seen the film, you might have read the book, you might have don't know the story at all. Uh, it's set in uh, France, um, I think about 1815, something like that. Um, and there is a, a convict who's been imprisoned. I think he's been in prison for about 20 years because he stole a loaf of bread and then he was violent in prison and his sentence got extended. He was let out on parole after 20 years, a very hardened, very bitter man. He'd been in those terrible labor camps down in the south of France. He had to, I think, um, uh, go all the way to Lyon to re report to his parole officer from Toulon. So he had a long journey. And partway uh, along his journey, he was sleeping rough in this town. And uh, a woman says to him, look, uh, I know you won't be able to stay anywhere because you've got a criminal record and your papers clearly show that. But if you knock on the door of the bishop, he'll probably give you a bed for the night. So he knocks on the door of the bishop. The bishop graciously welcomes him in, gives him a wonderful meal um, with his household, gives him a comfortable bed for the night. Um, then the criminal Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night and he steals all the bishop's silver, the wonderful silver that had been used over dinner, and he runs away into the night, only to be arrested by police with all this silverware the next day. He says, Jean Valjean says, the bishop gave it to me as a present. I stayed there last night. Well, the policeman can't believe that. Take him back to the bishop and say, we found this man. He has your silver. He says that you gave it to him. 
And the bishop says, yes, I did, but he left so quickly in the night that he forgot the two most important pieces of silver, these two lovely candlesticks, which are by far the most valuable, and I really wanted you to have them. And the policeman obviously can't believe this, but the bishop lets the policeman go, and then he turns to Jean Valjean, and um, he says these words, Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for God. Direct words taken out of the book, and uh, in fact, they use them in the film and the musical as well, which is really good that uh, they keep so um, closely to the words that Victor Hugo wrote. I think beautiful words. This bishop believes that through the sacrifice of giving this precious silver to this convict, that he's giving him a second chance, that he should use the value of this silver um, to become a, a, a better man, to make a, a, a new start. And um, it, it, I think it's such a, a moving illustration of what it means to love your enemies. I mean, it's, it's otherworldly, really. I mean, it's, it's difficult to think of that happening today, although I'm sure it does. I'm sure there are examples of Christians today who make such sacrifices in order to give somebody who seems to have no prospects whatsoever, somebody who is a hardened criminal, spent 20 years in prison, um, seems very little prospect that he would use this enormous gift for good. But actually, it's a life-transforming moment. And if you read the book, he goes for a total crisis, um, Jean Valjean, the next day, not knowing what to do. How can this person show me such love? And at the end of um, this kind of soliloquy in the book and in the musical He Becomes a Christian, um, he decides to use the money to get a fake um, ID, which doesn't seem like a very Christian thing to do, but he had to skip parole because the system just didn't allow him a new start at all. Um, and uh, he, uh, over time, bought a factory, became a much-loved uh, factory owner, became mayor of the town. He was so popular and... Um, just became somebody who, who was filled with grace, filled with love. Um, if you know the story, if you know the book, he shows grace and love to all those he comes across. But his past does catch up with him. And there is a policeman who is on his case because they know he skipped parole. There's a policeman looking for him. And the rest of the story is about this policeman who believes you're either good or you're bad. There are no second chances. And it's all about following every rule, following every law. And it's a very, very powerful illustration of the gospel. The gospel is not about rules. It's not about morality. It's not about always getting it right, which is what the policeman represents, which is what the system represents. No, it is about God's grace that gives you a second chance that can transform your life. And um, if you haven't read the story, if you haven't seen it, I do commend it to you because I think it is one of the most powerful illustrations of the, of the gospel outside biblical literature. It really is a very, very powerful expression of Christian faith. And it's one of the most striking examples of what it means to love your enemy, love the one who steals from you, love the one who actually bashes you over the head with the silver because the bishop tried to stop him in the middle of the night, and the impact that that can have, the transformation that it can bring. So um, just one or two conclusions to draw from the bishop's example. First of all, he offers hospitality to those who um, we, we find difficult. Um, so those who are a challenge to us. He gives generously and sacrificially even when that person is being hostile. So there are no conditions attached to this. Um, 
he witnesses the grace of Jesus, not only in deed by being generous, but in word. He talks about the passion and the blood. The passion, that's an old word for Jesus' death, and the blood. And we're going to be celebrating Holy Communion uh, in a few moments when we come to remember the passion and the blood Jesus gave his life for us so we might be forgiven. And he directly imparts that word of the gospel to Jean Valjean to such an extent that he's able to become and make a commitment as a Christian uh, the next day. And the result is transformed lives filled with grace and hope. And so I want to suggest that that is, although a very, very difficult example for us to aspire to, I want to suggest for us as Christians that it's something we should pray for. Um, For anybody that we find difficult, the word enemy is very strong, and we might feel we have no enemies, but there will be people that we find difficult, whether they're neighbors, whether they're people in our family, especially people in our family, whether they're people in our workplace, whether they're people in our church, even. And um, to think about how can we offer hospitality to them? How can we sacrificially give to them? How can we share the gospel, not only in deed, but also in word. How can we speak those words that Jesus spoke of hope and grace, today you'll be with me in paradise, to them. And then we will see, I know we will see God transform lives of people that we find hostile. I want to just, um, as I finish, um, just talk about uh, a personal journey for me of, of forgiving enemies. I went to this school, which is quite close to here, um, in Godalming Charterhouse, very beautiful school, and it's a very beautiful school. My experience there was not beautiful. I was there as a pupil um, from 1989 to 1994. It was a very tough place. My boarding house was a really tough place. Things happened there that, you know, you know people would be prosecuted for today. Some terrible things happened. Um, I, I was not treated well. Um, I was not very cool. I know difficult to believe when you see me today, but um, I didn't really fit in so well. And um, it was a really, really tough place, not just for me, but for many people. And I come across, since I've come across many people who've been really badly affected. And um, I remember I became a Christian in this context, partly because the words of Jesus really spoke to me. There was such a contrast to what I was experiencing, particularly these words about loving enemies. And those words were deeply challenging to me, where I felt I was surrounded by quite a few enemies. And I remember when I went forward for selection in the Church of England for ministry. It was a very long process. I was only 20, I think, at the time. I was going through my um, uh, final year at university. And I remember a really tough interview where the interviewer asked me about the challenges in my life. And I talked about my time at school. And he said, have you forgiven the people who bullied you? And I, I couldn't say that I had. And he said, you must do that. So we talked about it a lot. And I think he really helped me uh, to do that. And so um, that's a personal journey for me of loving enemies. But I just want to finish with these conclusions. Can we pray for those who persecute us daily for God's blessing uh, in their lives? For God to bring the very best into their lives. I think that's what praying for God's blessing is about. Secondly, can we show hospitality to those who are against us, to give sacrificially to those. I don't know what that looks like. Um, It means not judging. It means not criticizing. It means not rushing to defend ourselves. It means thinking the best of the people we find most difficult, I think. And we need to think about who who these people are, who are our enemies. It's going to be different for all of us. You know, um, it it could be a family member. It could be a neighbor. It could be a a work colleague. Um, 
it could be a politician who we find really difficult, somebody we don't even know who really, really upsets us and we find us uh, imposed on our lives in, in a difficult way. And then finally, let's find opportunities to speak grace and truth and love to those that we find most difficult. And then I believe that we will experience transformation. If we pray for those who persecute us, for those who oppose us, if we ask for God to bless them, we will see transformation. And um, when I um, left Charterhouse, um, I started to enjoy life for the first time in a long time because I hated boarding school. And um, I was so, every day I woke up, I thought, you know, I'm so excited not to be at boarding school. And then, in 2002, God very specifically called me to go back and be chaplain there. The last thing on my mind, I didn't want to go at all. And um, anyhow, I did go back, and the school was a totally transformed place, actually. There had been so many changes that had happened for the good. But I did find that my experience there of um, my very, very negative experience um, helped me come alongside others who are having negative experiences. And I think that challenge to forgive those who had been cruel to me enabled me to go back there and to minister there. And um, actually, we saw some wonderful... Um, uh, we had wonderful experiences of people coming to faith at that school. Um, and so I was so glad to be called back there. But I couldn't have gone back if I hadn't been challenged about that teaching of Jesus to love your enemies, to forgive those who persecute us. So I want to just lead us in some time of prayer now, if I may, just to pray for that. Because I think it applies to all of us. You know, we might not feel we have any enemies, but there will be people that God puts on our hearts who have been difficult, who have opposed us, maybe even people we don't know. So I just want to invite you, if you can, to stand. I'm just going to lead us in a short time of prayer as Ian begins to lead us in worship. I'm just going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come because I don't know how this teaching affects you. It might affect you deeply. There might be hostility that you are experiencing even today that is cutting into your heart or it might be that actually you don't feel there's, there's anybody you're at enmity with but you might be affected by the very aggressive discourse in our society so I just want to pray for us wherever we are let's just maybe open our hands whether we're standing or seated it doesn't matter just open our hands and let's just thank God for his Holy Spirit Lord we thank you that you are here by your Holy Spirit Pour your Holy Spirit into our hearts, Lord, we pray. We thank you, Lord, that whenever we call on your name, you are with us, and your Holy Spirit fills us. Just a moment of quiet. Ask God in the silence of our hearts, just for his Spirit to dwell in us afresh.
thank God for that love, that unending, unconditional love of God. I just want to encourage us just to lift one situation where people are at enmity with one another. It might be something we're in the midst of. It might be something that we observe but are not directly a part of. Or it might be a a situation that we have no personal contact with, something we've read in the paper, a conflict on the other side of the world. Let's just picture a place where there are people at enmity with each other. lift it to God and ask for his Holy Spirit and his love to be poured into the hearts of those in these situations. especially to those who are far from us. A place of sacrificial giving. A place where the gospel is spoken and enacted. A place of transformation, we pray. 